This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Such a great, great pleasure to sit down with Ken Follett, probably one of the best writers in history. He sold, he has sold over 160 million copies of his books. I don't know too many writers, if any, who have sold more than 160 million copies of his books. He's mostly a thriller writer, a suspense writer, a historical novelist. His latest book is called The Evening and the Morning, and it's a prequel to one of his most famous books, The Pillars of the Earth. I drill him about his writing process selfishly because I want to write books that sell 160 million copies. So I drill down into his process and I get the answers that I hope will take me over the top. So here's the podcast. Well, once again, I have Ken Follett, one of the most prolific and best-selling authors and writers of all time, and also on many lists, one of the best authors of all time, uh, particularly in the series we're about to discuss. But Ken, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Good to see you again, James. Ken, does it annoy you when people say, oh, he sold 160 million copies without uh, people first saying, and the books are excellent? (laughs) Uh, I got to tell you the truth, James. It doesn't bother me that much. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. You know, I'm really happy to have all these people who love my stories. And, uh, and, you know, also, I know what I've done. And I don't really depend on uh, reviews or, or comments. I listen to comments by readers very carefully. I'm very interested in what they've got to say. But the, the, the opinion of the general literary world is not how I measure myself. Yeah. And, you know, actually, do you mind if I ask about that? And then, of course, we have to talk about, or not have to, but we want to talk about your newest book, The Evening and the Morning, part of your Kingsbridge. It's a prequel to your Kingsbridge series, which sold so well, uh, uh, Pillars of the the, the Pillars of the Earth, uh, which was, we'll get into it, but it's a, a beautiful historical novel, which takes place in the Middle Ages and this prequel is sort of that bridge between the Dark Ages and, and the Middle Ages. But I think a lot of people know of you as a thriller writer. Uh, your first book was Eye of the Needle, which was a thriller. Many of your books afterwards was a, were thrillers. But I would say you're really more of a world builder. Like you build these, you write these historical novels where you build so many details into the world. It's as if the reader is living in the 1800s or the Middle Ages or in World War II. Like you, you, you fill in so much backstory and so many details. And I would say overall, would you consider yourself a historical novelist with, of course, a strongly plot-driven? Well, I guess that's true. I get a... a, a a lot of inspiration from history. I mean, that's the main thing, you know, from from uh, Eye of the Needle, which was my first success. It was a thriller, but it was, it was set in a time before I was born. So it was kind of historical. And then the Pillars of the Earth, which was inspired by the medieval cathedrals. And so I, I don't really mind 
how I'm categorized, but the truth of the matter is that history gives me inspiration. I read something and I think, oh my goodness, I could make such a great story out of that. That's how it works. And and do you ever like halfway through a novel think to yourself, oh my gosh, what, I read one article and I was interested for a day. I started writing this book and now it's six months later and I'm totally bored of this topic. <laughs> It's something like that always happens, James. And I've actually talked to other writers about this. And it's not quite what you describe, but it's similar because there is a moment in the writing of a book where you look at it and you think, who the heck is going to be interested in this? And we all feel it. I've asked other people if they have this moment. And somehow you've kind of you've lost sight of what it was that originally got you so excited. And you think this is just people talking to one another and people getting in cars or getting on horses or you think who the heck cares about this? And of course, it's just, that's just the moment. It, it doesn't reflect at all on the book. It reflects on yourself. It shows you know, somebody's going to read this book in maybe three or four weeks, and I'm writing it for three years. And so you can't expect me to, you can't expect the fascination to hold me quite so well as it'll hold the reader. So, so that's what happens. And uh, yeah, so there's always that moment when I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm thinking, is this, is this, is this any good? Will anybody ever care about this? And the only thing you can do, and everybody says this, the only thing you can do at that moment is kill is someone. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know, I never thought of that, but maybe I should try. No. The only thing you can do is say, well, I'll, 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 I'll write this bit and then I'll write the next bit and maybe I'll feel better about it in a few days' time. Well, you know, I was, I was only half kidding when I said kill someone. Like, do you ever feel like, okay, at this moment, I need to up... Like, and you've commented before about writing that you always need to start think about how you're going to keep upping the stakes for the main character. Yes. And at that point, when you're kind of a little bit confused as to your own personal meaning in writing this book, do you ever think, okay, now is a perfect time to, to up the stakes considerably? Well, not in a kind of random way, you know, that, that sort of thing needs to be done in measured steps. Um, so what quite often happens is if I if I've written a chapter or a scene and I'm just uh, I I'm just not satisfied with it then I the question I ask myself is where is the drama in this scene what is exciting or scary or intriguing about this scene and have I made it clear that that's what the scene is about because it's tempting to, to sort of give a bit of background and say how we got into this situation. And what you should, what I sometimes need to do is to say right at the top of the chapter, this is what it's about. Somebody's, somebody's life is in danger. Somebody's in love and has been rejected. Some big dramatic thing and you need you need to say that's what it's about that's that sometimes happened that sometimes happened who is it um, what there's a which uh i'm trying to think of the author who said never start with the weather but it and the reason i think the reason he says that james is that it's a bit of a cliche you know if it's a if if you if it's going to be sad you say that it's autumn and the leaves are falling from the trees and these 
The, the grass is covered with these brown leaves. And the, you know, how many hundred people have done that to introduce a sad note into the scene? So I think the only thing wrong with the weather is that it, it, it sometimes looks like a cliche. Uh, yeah, and you bring up an interesting point that if you, if you think a hundred other people have potentially written this sentence, it's probably not the best next sentence to write. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and unless unless it says, you know, he went out or, or something. <laughs> and, and you know, with um, a lot of the novels and, and this this most recent one, you know, the, the evening and the morning is no different. A lot of your novels start off with, I feel like there's several layers of umbrellas. Like you start with something very, a very high stakes concept, you know, a World War II spy. Uh, by the way, in your book, Whiteout, a, a pandemic that could be on the loose, yes. <laughs> potentially. So it's very <laughs> prophetic of you in uh, 2004. Uh, or or with, with other novels, uh, you know, a, a twin that's a murderer and how this affects, you know, what this means genetically and in the romance that is involved. Or, you know, in 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 all, or, or in the... Um, the Century Trilogy, where it starts in the 1800s, the Bering Bank is is bankrupt. All of these, it start off with very high stakes historical moments, but then, you know, you you whittle it down so it's high stakes also for the main characters involved. And so, do you think structurally in that way as well that okay, what's the high stakes important concept that's going to attract one type of audience, like people who like World War II or people who like genetics, medical thrillers or banking thrillers, or in the case of Pillars of the Earth and um, the, the evening and the morning, uh, the, the this transition between the Dark Ages and the mil Middle Ages, uh, do you start off thinking what should be that, that high stakes historical concept? Well, uh, that's one way to go. But if, if you think about the Pillars of the Earth, it's actually a really, it, it's a, it's a concept that probably wouldn't appeal to many people. So here we are, this novel is gonna be about building a church. What? And and um, as you know, famously my publishers, that's exactly what my publishers said, you know, are you sure building a church in the Middle Ages? So, so sometimes um, it's, so actually what the, what the Pillars of the Earth begins with is a builder called Tom who can't find any work. And that's a very personal crisis, isn't it? That's just him. That isn't that isn't historical. It isn't anything to do with the Middle Ages. Here's a man. He's got a family, and he can't find work, and he doesn't know how he's going to feed his family. And that's and that's actually a, that's a very taking drama. You read that, and you think to my, think to if so long as he's portrayed in the right way, you 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 think oh. Oh my God! What's he going to do? How's he going to manage? And then you're into it. So you can do, you you can actually build with something that is is historically a low stakes drama, but for that individual, it's everything. Right, and I, I like how obviously someone who's out of work, worried about how he's going to feed his family. That's something everybody can relate to. And I think you do this a lot with your characters, even if it's this high stakes drama, like. Are we going to, you know, a, a World War II spy, like in, in Eye of the Needle, he still wants to, you know, achieve something personally. He wants to bring back, you know, enough, you know, material that he can end the war. He's such a good spy. So he feels there's ego involved. It's personal. Exactly. And I think that's really important to, yeah. to so that 
it drills down so that it's about the reader also, no matter what the context. Yes, that's exactly right. And the, the, the joy of historical novels is that you can see how the great events of history, which are in the history books, are always driven by the decisions of individuals, often quite lowly people. And, and that, of course, is what makes historical novels so much more interesting than history books, is that they're about people that you can empathize with and, and people you, whose hopes and fears you can share. And you know, um, the, the Pillars of the Earth saga which uh, you mentioned your publisher didn't even want you to do it. This, on many lists of the best books of all time, this is often ranked as number two or number three after, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird or The, or the Bible. And, you know, it, it, there was a mini series made on, on the book. It's, a, it's this huge sweeping, you know, family saga, really, even though it's the royal families and history. And I never really knew the history you know, from after that period of the, the Norman invasion all the way through, you know, through the Middle Ages. I think that's kind of not really taught often in, in basic history class. Well, that's true. And, um, and of course, if you, if you get your history from historical novels, provided they're good historical novels, then you will learn a lot of history, as it were, effortlessly. Uh, you'll, you'll, you come to the end of the book and you think, that was a great story, and I learned a lot. Just, and, and you know, people say to me, people say to me, I hated history in school and I love these books because I'm learning so much. So it's a lot, you know, it's, and, and it, it's what I said. It's because you, f you find out these things through the thoughts and feelings of people you can sympathize with. And, right, and I think with history textbooks, you just get a list of facts like, oh, the Magna Carta was signed in 1215, and then this happened in 1492, and so on. But actually kind of doing the research and diving into, well, what do these kind of now seemingly obscure kings, queens, princes, what were they really thinking? What were their, and everybody has incentives, everybody has agendas, and particularly when you're dealing with royal families and church and state and, and law, these things molded history. And so again, it's those layers, like what personally was happening to, to drive this person and then how it, it has an effect through the centuries. Plus there's a plot. Yes, yeah. And it's, you know, at the beginning of Fall of Giants, um, it's a moment in history, 1914, in a very short time, a million young British men volunteered for the army. Now, that's, that's a fact from a history book, okay? But to understand it and to put that in a novel, I had to take a character, a young man, just one young man, and show the dilemmas that he went through, how he agonized, how he argued with his father, uh, how he had experiences of girls in the street calling him a coward because he wasn't in uniform. And you can show how, how all that affects one man, one young man. And then I think you understand it so much better when you read a million men volunteered for the army. You understand that because you understand why one man did it. So let, let, let me ask this, and um, I'm sorry if we're going all over the place, but it's it's fascinating the conversation about just writing in general from from you in particular, 
okay, so in that in the example you just said, in with Fall of the Giants, you have this big historical context, the beginning of World War One, a million people volunteering. It's it's high stakes for an entire country, for the entire world. Then you have the personal agony of a young man wrestling through this and and experiences that every young man can can relate to uh being called a coward and so on what what do you do when you overlay plot into this and how do you do it as authentically as possible other than just suddenly he gets swept up in a you know a, a murder chase or whatever well that's the that's the craft of the whole thing because you you want to lead the reader into dramas without the, the one thing that, that readers hate, and I do as a reader and all of us readers hate, is suddenly get the, getting the feeling, oh, the author is just making this up. And isn't it funny? That's fatal. But you know, the, everybody knows the author's just making it up. But to be reminded of that by something that happens in the story that just seemed to fall from nowhere, that that reminds you that it's all made up and you sort of lose it loses conviction and you you begin to distance yourself a little bit from it and suddenly the magic isn't working anymore it's and it's all to do james it's all to do with the way in which these dramas are introduced so that you can really believe step by step that the, that the guy or the girl got himself or herself gradually into this bad situation so uh, I like the word magic because obviously with magicians, it's the same thing. We all know it's made up. It's not real magic. And yet, and yes. it's not even that you want to believe, but you're amazed at the, the skill involved in making us unsure whether this is magic or not. And like with Fall of the Giants, maybe can you describe your thinking process as you push that character into plot? It wasn't like suddenly he was shot in the head and someone's got to solve it. No, that's right. And what happens is that uh, uh, he, he, his father is very against the war. And so at first he doesn't even think of, of uh, joining up. But then uh, uh, all these pressures come down on him and he thinks about it a lot and he talks about it and he makes that decision. And uh, eventually, of course, he ends up in France, in the trenches, uh, across no man's land from the Germans. And all that is, all that's normal. And now it's 1916 and he is uh, near, the, um, near the banks of the river Somme. And he doesn't know that the Battle of the Somme is gonna be the most famous and horrible battle of the First World War. He's just there with a bunch of people and uh, other young men like himself, and they're bored, and they're kind of almost looking forward to a battle because at least it'll be something to do. So there we. So the point is that his the way he thinks about all this is very natural, but he is moving step by step into an into the most terrible battle of of that entire war. And then again, how do you separate out his his? Um encounter with that battle with the history books like what makes him stand out and that drives the reader forward well the reader is concerned about him he is concerned and he is concerned like many young men in armies will i be brave when it comes to the crunch you know will i 
or, or will I be one of those who turns around and runs away? And uh, I mean, uh, that happened a lot. And as we know, um, in most armies, certainly in the British Army in the First World War, men were shot. Men are on our own side. We shot men on our own side for desertion. So he's so there's all that going on. But something, the Battle of the Somme, is um, uh, something that many people don't understand. And the the night before the actual battle begins, I have two men having an argument, and one thinks that tomorrow's advance should be cancelled because he says, we know it's not going to work. And the other one says, we don't really know and we can't cancel it. So there's there's an argument between two people about whether they should go on with, with the battle. They, they know that it's, they know it's not going to be what they hoped for. They know that it's not going to be the great triumph they hoped for, but should they actually call it off? And that way, with two men having that argument, you can show the historical reasons for that battle. And you can see why it's going to turn into a disaster and you can mm. see why people still did it. And of course, that argument, I don't resolve that argument because I think that's important too. When there's a big argument about something in history or something in politics and two people in my story have the discussion, it's not for me, the, the writer, to tell my readers what they should think about it. Mm. I present them with arguments on both sides and they're, in, they're smart people. Readers are smart people. They will make up their mind and they, won't, they don't want Follett to tell them what to think about the Battle of the Somme. They want to understand it. They want to know the facts. They want to know how people who were there felt about it. But then they will make up their own mind, was it right or wrong? And now... Um, you know, one more, one more question on, on technique. Uh, I know you outline heavily and a lot of this, um, is kind of, you know, after the outline and you start writing and all this stuff gets fleshed out when you're, you know, you're, you're also a master of suspense, you know, particularly in those moments towards, let's say the final 25% of a book where it just is a nonstop page turner. How do you think of, you know, again, it's, it's, keeping the magic hidden, but how do you surprise the reader when obviously the reader is trying to think of every twist and turn that could possibly happen? How do you feel comfortable? Let's even say in, in your first big thriller, Eye of the Needle, how do you feel comfortable with that final plot twist where you know you're going to surprise or what, what formula happens in your head where you think, okay, now's the time for the surprise and this is how I'm going to do it? Well, I suppose... Um, what you do in a story is you create expectations in a reader. So at some point round about the middle of uh, maybe a third of the way into Eye of the Needle, readers will, will guess that this, yeah, this family on this island sooner or later is going to come in contact with this very deadly spy. So you, you're going to but there's something that's going to happen on that island, and maybe I won't say because it'll be a spoiler. But but you'll you'll you may remember, James. Yeah. Something will happen when they meet that the reader isn't expecting, and that's so you you've got to be aware of the expectations that you're generating in a reader's mind, and of course you satisfy some of them because the reader wants some of these things to happen, but you try to do it in a way that will make 
the readers say, oh my goodness, I didn't expect that. That's interesting. You satisfy some of them. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting insight because they, while they're sort of patting themselves on the back is when you hit them over the head with, hey, you were not you were right, you're smart, but you're not completely right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, that's right on the money, that's right. So there's sleight of hand there, like they're looking the other way when yeah. you get them. Yeah. So now, so now I love this, I love the title of this new book, The Evening and the Morning. And of course, it's a prequel to your 1989 book, The, the Pillars of the Earth. It's, it's set in England right during this, chaotic time, uh, again, between the dark ages and the middle ages, a period I, I really knew very little about until, until the pillars of the earth, which I read a long, long time ago. And then now this book, uh, the evening in the morning. And of course there were several books in this Kingsbridge series about the building of this cathedral, but I love the title, the evening and the morning. And just to, to put it in context, it comes from Genesis. Uh, it was after God creates the first day and, you know, he says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And what's beautiful is the evening comes first. And it's just, it's rem it mirrors the, the dark ages came before the light, before the middle ages. And I'm just, again, this is very high stakes. We're in a, a, a thousand AD, uh, a, a period that I have never read about really, even though it's, you know, this first millennium after zero. And what what inspired you there, both with the title, the plot, the story? Just give us the whole rundown. Uh, I liked the idea of the year 1000 because at that moment in history, there were three powerful groups competing for control of England. And they were the Anglo-Saxons, of course, who lived there, the Vikings who, um, uh, who raided and, and stole and murdered and took people as slaves. And the Normans, who I think were probably the most sophisticated society in Europe. And all three wanted control of England. All three wanted to rule England. And of course, a three-way contest is kind of more, um, there's more room for surprises and unexpected things to happen than in a straightforward, uh, you know, um, a straightforward two-way. So I liked that idea. And the other thing I liked was the idea of seeing Kingsbridge, this city where the cathedral was built in the Pillars of the Earth, before it was an important city. I thought, I don't know, maybe it's a village. Maybe it's not even a village. Maybe it's a kind of settlement with a handful of houses. And then part of the story will be about how it turned into this vibrant city where they had a cathedral. And Whose ambition was that? Who wanted that? Who And who were the people who said, no, 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 we want to keep things just as they are. We don't want any changes, no radical changes. There's nothing. We like the old days. Let's have everything. Let's keep everything. And that, of course, is a conflict that that everybody can recognize because it still goes on today. You right. Have... Make the dark ages great again. Yeah. <laughs> Your little hats. <laughs> Now, that's I never thought of that. <laughs> that's your advertisement for the buses in New York City now. <laughs> um, so, so you're you're obviously you're you're Welsh, and how you know England was you know among the people attacking England were were the 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 Welsh and trying to take over. There's all these different groups as you mentioned. How much of your own personal interest in in your family uh, and ancestral history goes into this book and into the research of this book? 
Well, um, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows um, anything about their ancestors that far back, a thousand years ago. Um, uh, certainly, um, when I was writing Fall of Giants, I thought a lot about my family history because um, just as the, the young hero of Fall of Giants, at the age of 13, he begins work in a coal mine, my grandfather did that. At the age of 13, he went, they call it, they say he went down the pit. That means he started work in a coal mine. And I just imagined how scary that must have been for him at the age of 13. Well, how scary would it have been for me at the age of 13 to go down in this, this rattly elevator uh, a mile underground and to be, to know as they did, everybody everybody in Wales knew that there were accidents in coal mines and sometimes the, the tunnel would collapse. Sometimes the mine would fill with poisonous gas. Everybody knew this stuff went on all the time. It was actually more dangerous to be a coal miner than it was to be in the British Army in the trenches. I mean, that's how, that's how, that's how bad it was to be a coal miner. And so to think about my grandfather at the age of 13, doing this and to put myself in his shoes and imagine how I felt, that was quite important. That, that, that enabled me to, to bring a lot of emotion to that beginning scene, that, big, that, that prologue about that young man. And then, of course, I also, there's a, there's, a, there's a culture in South Wales, there's a way of giving people nicknames, for example that I was very familiar with. And, you know, I could make up those nicknames all day because, because I grew up as, as part of that. It wasn't, that wasn't research. That was just me remembering things from my childhood. I remember a, 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 at my grandparents' house, my grandparents lived in a mining town and uh, a guy and a, a, a guest at their house, uh, on a sunny day, he lay down uh, on the lawn in the garden. And, and when he got up, his shirt was black. It was coal dust. It was just everywhere. This was just a regular lawn, just regular grass in, in somebody's yard. And uh, the coal dust was everywhere. So that kind of thing was, was in my own memory. I didn't do any research for that. And that's where the Welsh, that's where the Welsh stuff comes out. Uh, there, there's a scene in, in, Fall of Giants, where after a battle, uh, a, the telegram boy comes round, and it's not often in this mining village people don't often get telegrams. And this guy has got a telegram for every other house. It's probably the best scene in the whole book. They call it ever afterwards. They call it Telegram Wednesday because, of course, those telegrams are saying to parents, "Your son died mm. in the war," and. Because in those days, young men from a particular town or village would all be together in the army. When there was a catastrophe, 20, 30, 40, 50 men from the same town or village would all be dead on the same day, and those telegrams would all arrive. And I, I felt when I, you know, when I thought about that, I thought that is the way to show the horror of this particular war, it's 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 actually it, it's it's um, hundreds of miles from the battlefield. It's in a mining village, and and there's a 
boy on a bicycle with a bag of telegrams. And that sums up the grief and the horror of that war better than anything else. And I could picture you putting yourself into the minds of, you know, the boy going down the coal mine or the boy delivering the telegrams or the people receiving the telegrams. Like, do you, do you actively almost imagine you're the person so you evoke those emotions and are able to, to write them down? Yes, you have to. You have to. That's what we do all the time when we write novels. And our aim, of course, is that the emotions that, that we imagine in the characters in the story are also felt by readers. That's the whole point of this, is that the reader should feel those emotions, should share emotions. So the reader needs to share the, the fear of the young man going into battle and the grief of the parent on being told that he has been killed in battle. Those, the reader must feel those. And um, if, if it's well written, then readers will notice that tears come to their eyes or their, their, their pulse seems to go faster or they find themselves sitting on the edge of the seat. Or um, I sometimes say, you know, if it's a Stephen King, then you probably get up out of your chair and, and, and go to the back door and make sure you remember to lock it. <laughs> well, well, but that, that brings up an interesting point, which is that I feel like a, what's called a literary novel, or let's just even say a literary short story, has the feelings and the emotions and is beautifully written, but is somehow missing the plot, as opposed to, let's say, a well-written, plot-driven story will have these literary elements, but then also be masterful with plot, which which you are. And I always wonder, like, is where does, and this is gonna sound like a strange question, but where does plot come from for you? Is it a formula or is it like something you're just having fun with in your head and it, and it evolves and you play with it? Or, or what, is, what does plot mean? Uh, it, it's not a formula. Uh, it's, um, and I think it's because those of us who do this just have that kind of imagination. You know, when, when I was a boy, I constantly imagined myself to be something else, to be a cowboy or uh, a pirate or an astronaut. I spent so much of my life living in my imagination. And it, I do it now. Uh, now it's how I make my living. But, of course, uh, when, I was, when I was small, I, I wasn't making a living. And uh, it was just that just came to me automatically. So now here we are. I'm thinking about this story and uh, it's taking place, you know, around the year 1000. And I'm just constantly thinking of things that could happen. And I might think of 10 things and nine of them I'll think, no, that's no good. Um, but because it's kind of a random thing, you know, but the 10th will make me think, oh, what a great idea. And I think that's probably how most of us work. The imagination throws off random things and one of them turns out to be good. Like like with Whiteout, they, they you know, are engaged in steal, you know, and this, I bring up Whiteout because it's so relevant to our current time, but they are engaged in stealing this deadly virus slash pandemic. And then suddenly they end up at a Christmas dinner. <laughs> like, you know, that's a weird plot twist. 
Yeah, as opposed to like a whole chase. Like I would just think the basic thing would be, let's just get them on a chase, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I really liked the idea of this, this family, a fairly affluent but not rich family, uh, having a real family time. And this pretty scary gang of people who people who want to be terrorists really they want to threaten to release this deadly virus and they they show up and then you've got i mean that's one of the most tense situations that you can imagine a nice family and a bunch of thugs and they're thrown together and of course it just heightens all that to make it christmas i mean this story could have happened on um on december the 19th Right. But but somehow it wouldn't have felt so dramatic a week earlier. So like when you were outlining, are you thinking, okay, we're gonna make we're gonna up the stakes in this weird way, throw them in a the house. We're gonna, then we're gonna up the stakes further. It's Christmas, yeah. And then we're gonna up the stakes further. There's interconnections or whatever. Like and yeah. there's still a chase happening. And uh, uh, and then and then at what point do you think to yourself, okay, now I need the twist. I need to throw everybody into a lurch? Um, well, I suppose it's hard to say exactly, but there is, you're, you're absolutely right. There is a right moment. There's a moment for it. And there is a moment when I think this, okay, the, the, the story has run on as expected for a few chapters, um, but we certainly don't want people to think that they always know what's going to happen. So maybe, so now what could I do now that would, that would, that would still be, it's got to be rational. It can't be, you know, famously, um, uh, who was it? Um, not Dashiell, uh, uh, Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler said, when in doubt, have a man come through the door with a gun in his hand. Actually, <laughs> Actually, it's bad advice um, because it's an unexpected development, but it hasn't been prepared for. You, What you want for the surprise, you want the reader to say, I should have seen that coming. Huh. You don't want them to say, oh, my God, that's come out of the blue. You want them to say, I wasn't expecting that, but I should have. And there comes a moment, you're dead right, there comes a moment in the story where you think it's time for one of those. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring, so you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. With this new book, the the evening in the morning, and also just in general with the the Kingsbridge uh, series with Pillars of the Earth, this was a different uh, direction for you, I would say, in terms of historical Pillars of the Earth about this cathedral being built. This guy Thomas Builder, appropriately named enough, and then the evening and the morning is this prequel to this fantastic book that again has inspired TV series and you know sold. T- 10 million copies or more and is listed as one of the the best books ever. What got you 30 years later thinking, okay, time for a prequel? Well, I guess it was, um, uh, it was partly that I liked the moment in history of the year 1000 and partly that, um, you know, Kingsbridge has got its own little fan club. You know, people, that town, this is the fourth novel I've written, which is based in that town, at least partly. Uh, uh, and um, there are people who who, um, uh, are, who are kind of interested in the town itself. And it's, it's gained this identity. And it's partly, of course, because the stories that happen in Kingsbridge are actually stories that affected all of England. But we look at those grand historical stories in a much narrower focus when we focus on the town of Kingsbridge. And people like that. There are several, um, there are several places, I think three, four places in the United Kingdom called Kingsbridge. Um, but the biggest is a town in Devon, uh, which is in the southwest. And I discovered a weird thing. 
um, uh, just a couple of days ago, there's a bookshop there. And, and real hardcore fans around the world order their, their books from that bookshop because it will be arrived in a pack. It will arrive in a package marked Kingsbridge. That's funny. <laughs> that's great. That shows that's an enviable position. I mean, how many people in life get to say they created a place purely out of their minds and people want to be a part of that place so much they order things from it. <laughs> yes, yes, that's, <laughs> you're, right. you're right, it's very funny. It's very, and it, you're right, it's flattering, of course it's flattering. And then now with, with the evening and the morning, and, and again, I, I think, by the way, this is a, a standalone read, you don't have to read Pillars of the Earth first, but there's so much here because England was at this critical point where, you know, who was gonna be, the next, like the whole uh, lineage of kings from then till now sort of started, I feel, then around this period between Dark Ages and Middle Ages. And not only that, you have, you know, the transition from this these chaotic Dark Ages to not necessarily a rule of, of law, but the beginnings of law that, you know, reverberate into our current U.S. Constitution, for instance. Yes. And so again, it's like this massive high high stakes, epic saga. You follow so many different characters, which itself is a very interesting technique. You're in, you, there's no narrator. You're in the minds one by one of these different characters. What goes into the making of a, a saga? Like each character needs their own arc and their own almost novel to some extent. Yes, that's a good way to put it because you, in, in fact, you intertwine two or three or even four individual stories, each of which might be a novel on its own, although I think it's more interesting when we see how those people intertwine. Yes. So I, generally speaking, I introduce one character and I tell what's on her mind or his mind, what's worrying them, what they're hoping for, and then they will they might peripherally meet somebody who who initially doesn't make a big impact on their lives but then in the next chapter I'll go to that somebody and we'll see what's in his mind and what's challenging him in life and what he's striving for what he longs for that kind of thing uh, and then and then we might do it with a third or even a fourth character. And then slowly through the book, their destinies become more and more closely interwoven. And towards the end of the book, you find that everything that each of them does affects the other three. And that there's really basically going to be one solution to all of these three or four uh, um, uh, uh, conflicts uh, uh, or dramas. So that's the that's the pattern i find it satisfying you know most people write what they like to read and i find it very satisfying to read a book that that intertwines the life dramas of several people and uh i so i i, I love to write that kind of thing and happily there are quite a lot of people who like to read it with me yeah and do you ever feel that if you're writing books in a series, people drop off each book so that the next book, you, you lose people along the way, or do you ever gain people with uh, the second or third or fourth book in a series? Well, both really. I mean, of course, uh, 
uh, some some people die. So um, you you're constantly aware that that um, uh, you've got this group of readers, but it doesn't stay there forever. Some of them get older, uh, and so constantly you you're hoping that young people will start to read these books and like them and become regular readers there's a kind but you do yeah i mean i think we all we all think about that you definitely don't want to get into a position where you, you don't want to be in a position where young people don't like your books because the 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 the, <laughs> the constituency of old people is inevitably shrinking right <laughs> and and what what would you say I mean, there's so much research that had to go in, plus outlining, because whenever you have these multi-people sagas and you're following one and then you're following another and, and they're getting more and more interwoven, a lot of that interweaving has to take place to some extent in the outlining, which you know I, I remember reading, you, you do up to six months of outlining sometimes before starting a book. How, how much of that interweaving is really carefully thought out in the outlining? And then how much do you change the outline when you're actually, you know, neck deep in the writing? It's pretty much all laid out in the outline, and I don't change very much in the actual mm -hmm. writing. What I do in the writing is flesh it out. The thing about the outline is that you can make big changes with relatively little effort. By the time you get into the writing, if you're halfway through and you realize that, that this character actually should be a young woman, not a young man. You've got a lot of work to do to go back to the beginning and make all of those changes. Whereas in the outline, you can do it very, very quickly. In the outline, you can chase, change somebody's gender. You can, you can completely drop uh, part of the story because it's not turning out exciting enough. You can bring in something completely new. You can change the order of events and you can do it all without a great deal of rewriting because you're just working on the outline. And I, I realized the first book that I outlined was also my first success and it was Eye of the Needle. Mm -hmm. And I realized then that for me, the outline was essential and that all the time I spent on the outline, and I spent up to a year on the outline. That, that's researching at the same time, but it's still a year. And uh, all of that, you know, if that's how much I need, that's what I'll do because it will save me time later. It will make sure, if I do the job right, it will make sure that the foundation for this book, the narrative for this book, is, is exciting enough. It has to the story has to change constantly. You know, if you, there's a, there's a simple rule of thumb, James, which is that about every four, five, six pages, the situation must change for the characters. And if you carefully read somebody like Jane Austen, you'll see that that actually works. That's, that's how she writes. A lot oh. of the classic, uh, great classic authors, Balzac, uh, Tolstoy, there's a change uh, in the character's situation at frequent intervals, not too often because it's, then it seems frenetic, but not too slowly because then it becomes ponderous and you start think you start skipping pages. What's an example maybe of like a, a five page change? Well, it could be a big thing like a murder, but it can be a very small thing like somebody tells a lie. 
Actually, people telling lies, it's always dramatic when somebody tells a lie because you always wonder whether they're going to be found out. And um, so, or it might be somebody making the discovery. Oh my God, he lied to me about that. That would be, a, that would, see, that would change the situation. Then the, that character's attitude to his friend would alter completely. Oh my God, he lied to me. So you need, so it doesn't need to be a world-shaking change, but you need to have that kind of progress in the story constantly in popular fiction because, you know, the, the, feeling, the feeling that we want as readers is, I can't put this book down. That's what, you know, that's what we're always, that's what we love as readers. And as an author, that's what I'm always trying to create. And, and with, um, with Eye of the Needle, I remember you writing that you knew when you finished it that this book was going to, this, this book was it. It was going to change your life. Did you know that after the outline? And then, and then do you validate the idea of the book with the outline by sharing it with agent and friends and so on? Um, I, I, do, I do show the outline to my two English language publishers um, because I like their input. You know, I, I very much like um, uh, to show my work to to people. I've got I've got a few friends who are interested and who like to read my work in its early stages, and they give they make good comments. And I always want to hear those criticisms before the book is printed. You know, um, but as for I've going back to Eye of the Needle, you asked me when did I know? It was it was when I was about halfway through. And I was sitting at the typewriter uh, at home. I was I still had a job at that time, but and so I was writing in my spare time. Uh, but I had, I think, three weeks holiday coming, and I took that time and I I started writing Eye of the Needle. And my first wife, who I was married to then, still remembers me sitting at the typewriter and saying to her, "This is really good." <laughs> And what what did, what what made her think that? Like what what stood out? Uh, it's 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 hard to say exactly why, but I had a strong sense that this was because I had been writing novels before, and some and they'd been published, but they had not been bestsellers. And I I knew that what I was doing now was streets ahead of anything that I had done before. It was in in all, in in several different respects. It was just so much better. And the other thing about it was, this doesn't always happen, by the way, but that book was easy to write. Uh, and I felt, I guess, if you're an athlete and you're running a marathon and round about the 10-mile mark, you're running really strongly and you feel you're going to finish and you're going to finish in a good time and you're going to make it, I had something like that kind of feeling. I, I felt I was really writing well. The story was good. Uh, uh, the drama was terrific. The suspense was good. I just... I guess this is what I'm, I'm getting at, which is you, you had written some novels before. You had published them. They were, you know, okay, but weren't... Even your agent said, I'm not sure we could sell you in America. Yeah. And what... If you could define it, what do you think clicked in your skill set? Like, what what advice could you give that would spare someone those first few novels? If you could, I mean, I'm asking a ridiculous question, but I'm I'm asking selfishly. Well, I, I mentioned planning, and that was something that I did that I had not done before. 
I also had to research Eye of the Needle because the story takes place uh, a decade before I was born. And I, I knew that life in wartime England was different, uh, but I didn't know the details and I had to research it. And that turned out to be a very good way of firing up my imagination to do research. Mm. And I've, I've every book I've written since I've researched. And the final thing was pace. Those early books that I wrote that weren't successful were too quick. I wrote them too fast and they went by too fast. They were all too short. I didn't spend enough time developing the characters and their feelings and emotions and describing the settings. Uh, I had been a newspaper reporter, so I was used to giving the reader the facts, one, two, three, four, five. And of course, that's not what we want from novels. We want to be drawn into the atmosphere and the tension of the novel, and we want to stay there, and we want it to develop slowly, but kind of inexorably towards the climax. That's the kind of... So in uh, with Eye of the Needle, I managed to slow myself down. Um, and so those three things were different. And then I do also think, James, that there is something indefinable about this process. There's something that, that we know happens. People sometimes, athletes sometimes use the phrase in the zone. Uh, you know, somebody who's playing tennis really well suddenly thinks, you know, I'm playing today better than I've ever played before. That kind of thing. And it's very hard to account for. But a lot of people have are lucky enough to have felt it at some time or other in their life. And I felt that when I was writing Eye of the Needle. And, and there probably was a before and after where, so you were a reporter, you were unhappy with this outlet for your writing. You, you didn't feel maybe you were going to be the best reporter in the world. You, you wanted to be a writer, but those first few novels were struggling a little bit. Was, it, was there a point where you were like, oh, this is going to be the rest of my life, just being mediocre on every, at every angle? Well, I, saw, I did have a plan B. I, mean, I didn't think of it as, as being me, mediocre, but I thought, you know, for, there was a period before Eye of the Needle was published when I did quite a lot of hack work. So I took a movie script and turned it into a novel. Mm -hmm. uh, a publisher had an idea and said, write a novel that that tells this story uh there was a no, little non-fiction book about a bank robbery in nice in the south of france which was badly written and the publisher asked me to rewrite it i did that kind of thing and i was thinking and i was i was making uh, enough money to pay the rent doing that and i did think if if, uh, you know, if I never make it as a big time writer, maybe I'll make it as a small time writer. And I might, you know, I'll make enough money to get by and feed my family and pay the rent. And, and um, you know, I'll enjoy it because it's writing and it's using my imagination. And I'll make, even if the, even if the jobs are kind of hack work, I'll make the most of it. I'll make them rise a little bit above that level. So I had a plan B. And then uh, when Eye of the Needle came out and you start to see the rush and million copies, two million copies, three million copies, did you think to yourself, okay, life's different, um, I'm never looking back? Like, was there a relief? <laughs> yeah, I certainly felt life's different. I was, yeah, and I loved it. Good. You know, I, I, had, I had daydreamed about being famous and being popular 
and being rich. And, uh, and, I, and I, I liked it all. I loved it all. I guess the only, I mean, what I did think then was, oh boy, can I do this twice? I mean, because, you know, a lot of people write one really good book, make one hit record, make one good movie, uh, and afterwards can never repeat the success. And I, I thought a lot about that. That was very much in my mind. Okay, I'm really thrilled about Eye of the Needle. I've made a lot of money. It's changed my life, but can I do it again? Uh, and um, so I did at least, I mean, I, I've always felt that if you're successful, the mistake is to think that you're magic. The, the, the idea that because you've done something well, you will always do it well. That idea, I think, is fatal. Uh, yes, and I agree with that. And I've always, I've, I've always kept trying. I've always thought to myself, this book I'm writing, there's no guarantee that this book I'm writing is going to be good and is going to be a success and please people. There's no guarantee. It'll only be good if I make it good. And, and that's sort of, I'm, I'm driven like that. And I really want the next one. I, uh, I, apparently, they told me I'd, I'd lost count, but um, uh, the evening in the morning is my thirty-sixth book, and oh, I'm really? still yeah, and I'm still I'm and I'm and James, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm really pleased that you like it, but I'm thinking, yeah, but what about the actual people who 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 go into the bookshop or order it online and pay their own money, and uh, you know, are they? Are they really going to say, I'm really glad I spent my money on this? And that's what I think about all the time. They've got to be really glad they spent their money. And so, so do you think people's attention spans have changed in recent years because of, you know, now you can get uh, entertainment from a 15 second video on TikTok or YouTube. And, you know, when you're giving these epic historical novels, do, do you feel that, you know, you're able to appeal to that audience? I believe that I'm living proof that people's attention spans have not shortened. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, The Pillars of the Earth is um, something like 375,000 words. So it's as long as three or four regular novels. World Without End, which was, which was also a huge success, is actually a little over 400,000 words. Uh, and um, uh, I mean... Probably the most flattering thing that people ever say to me is, "I didn't want it to end," because mm. if you feel that way after four hundred thousand words, then then I really have captured your attention, haven't I? That's so. It's but it's you know if you if the book is right, people want it to be long. Actually, people want it to go on and on because they're enjoying it. And they right, and, they, and they're living in that world. Yeah, yeah. Which so, is so easy to do in the Kingsbridge world. And again, with the historical context, you don't only need the plot to drive you forward, but oh, this is I'm learning too while I read this. You you give people multiple ins to liking the book, the characters, so. the plot, the history, the meaning, the meaningfulness of it. That's definitely that's definitely my aim. Yes, to get them absorbed in a story but also give them things to think about and, uh, and, and casually, almost without them noticing, they're also learning a bit of history. I'm curious, 
you know, after World War One, obviously there was a whole slew of novels about World War One. After World War Two, all these writers like Norman Mailer, Joseph Heller, James Jones, similar with Vietnam. Do you think after this pandemic, there's going to be a whole new crew of writers, you know, drawing inspiration from what's happened these past six months? I'm not sure because um, we're not fighting other people. Uh, we're we're fighting something. Uh, it's not quite inanimate, is it? It's because it's a virus, but it certainly isn't conscious. It's a and it's more a kind of force of nature. And the real drama comes from conflict between human beings, conflict between human versus nature, climbing a mountain, crossing a desert, something very physically trying. There's drama in that, but there's much more drama in in people who are in conflict so much that they're willing to kill each other to resolve that. That's the height of drama, I think. And that's why war is so fascinating. I'm not sure that a virus uh, gives us that much drama. I'm not sure it creates suspense in, in quite the same way. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting, right? Because everybody just sat at home. That was the adventure. Yeah. <laughs> like people didn't <laughs> leave their house. Well, uh, you know, oh, by the way, I should mention probably the very first book of yours that I read was that early movie script that you took and novelized, which is when I was a kid, I read Capricorn One. No kidding. <laughs> the, the classic movie starring O.J. Simpson. Yes. And the novelization by you. I never saw the movie. I only read the book. <laughs> so thank you very much for that. I've, well, I've been a reader ever since. Well, so, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I'm really <laughs> pleased that you enjoyed that. I mean, it was um, certainly, um, well, Let's say it, it wouldn't necessarily have been my choice of the book I'll be remembered by. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I loved it. But, uh, you know, Ken Follett, I can't recommend highly enough. The, the evening and the morning, such a, a sweeping story, epic, historical characters that are, are in and out of love, trouble, violence, hate, anger, plot, you know, and it feeds right into, to, you know, the, the pillars of the earth and then the other Kingsbridge books. I'm always, I'm always a fan. So happy to have you on the podcast. And I feel selfish that I'm able to, to just have a captive audience of you and just ask you any questions I want about writing a novel. I, I, I hope to one day use the knowledge myself. So Thank you once again, and congratulations on, on the evening and the morning. I'm sure it's going to do absolutely great. Well, thank you, and it's always a pleasure talking to you, James. By the way, I love your first lines in a lot of these novels, like The Pillars of the Earth, for the first line, the small boys came early to the hanging. You got to continue reading basically the next 375,000 words after that. Well, I, <laughs> I hope so. But yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with that first line. First lines are important. You're absolutely right. And uh, yeah, I, I think that one's pretty good. And then how often do you think about like cliffhangers for each chapter? I don't, I'm not sure that's necessary. Um, mm -hmm. if, if the characters are engaging enough and they're involved in something uh, that's dramatic, you don't necessarily need a cliffhanger. Uh, occasionally they're good. Um, rip, a cliffhanger for every chapter can begin to seem a bit contrived and you're always striving for the story to seem natural 
even though it's not natural because it's highly dramatic, but you want it to seem as if it could easily happen. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think um, I compare, like, let's say a classic thriller writer like uh, Brad Thor. I feel his he does short chapters, ends in cliffhangers, but I don't get the sense, and, and this is neither good nor bad, it's just his style. He's not necessarily outlining. He's going from cliffhanger to cliffhanger and upping the stakes that way. And, the, and I see him driving the book that way as opposed to kind of this um, umbrella-like view of the, of the whole thing. It's, it's true, you're right. And if I think about Dan Brown, for example, who's mm. a terrific, terrific suspense writer and hugely popular, he goes from crisis to crisis. He, he's, his approach isn't, isn't the same as mine. His is, his is more like, it's not quite a cliffhanger every chapter, but it's nearly that. And boy, does he do it well. Yeah. And what, what's next? What's the next book? Ah, I'm working on it. I'm deeply into it. Uh, I've I finished the outline. I've written half of the first draft, but more than half of the first draft. And um, but I'm not talking about it yet. But it's going to be another big change. Another big change. Science fiction future. I, I I refuse to answer on the grounds that I might incriminate myself. But um, I'm, I'm taking the fifth on that, James. But. Um, uh, I, I'll tell you that it'll be a surprise and I won't say any more. Do you, um, uh, do you not talk about books while you're writing slash outlining to lose the energy? Well, that's, it's, it's also partly because if it's not finished, then it may change. So I may tell you something about the, the book and, and then change my mind and it'll be completely different. So, uh, it's best to wait at least till it's finished. Excellent. Well, thanks once again, Ken Follett, author of the evening and the morning uh, prequel to the Pillars of the Earth and the Kingsbridge saga. Uh, all all of your books have been such a pleasure for me. It's like it's like candy and history and plot all mixed together. Great. <laughs>